This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Rose Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the CBS Sports Radio Network. I am Mike Casas, welcoming in Chris Anderson, our first two-day after postmortem, uh, whatever you want to call it, a Q&A podcast as we do soliciting questions and demands, I would say, from our listeners here after West Virginia loses the season opener, 30-24 to 24 on the road against the Maryland Terrapins. A win coming up Saturday against Long Island, and I don't know, I don't want to go uh, cart horse here, Chris, but the Virginia Tech game is shaping up to be enormous for Neil Brown in season three. Yeah, it is. As I say, one of the very first questions on in in that uh, Q and A thread that we posted. That um, well, I don't know if that was a great idea. We posted it right after the game. Uh, we joked about it on the post game pod about one of us had to step up and do that. And next thing you know, hundred and some questions, hundred and some comments in there. Uh, don't think we're going to get to all of them here on the podcast. So, but one of the very first ones is the. Virginia Tech game, a must win for Neil Brown. And I know those are your favorite type of questions, but maybe that's not such a crazy question after all. Like I'll, just I'll say this. I would, I would almost go yes, because, again, you can't be one and three, because if, the, if they lose two out of the first three, they're not going to go on the road and lose and beat Oklahoma. So right. that's good. And then, I mean, you're looking at <laughs> a guy who's two games under 500 at that point uh, in year three. But I would say – not even big picture. I did not see the turn on everything. Let's call it the climb collective. I did not see a turn against that after any of the first 11 losses like I did after the 12th loss. That seemed like the response to this one was the most profound, most disappointing, most, I don't want to say irreversible, but hardest to turn back the other way if it doesn't start going in the other direction quickly. And if you do that against tech at home, and again, you're probably looking at one and three at that point, it's going to make for a long season and a long uh, list of convincing acts you have to accomplish to get this thing back in track. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, the, the reason for that is, I uh, seems to me to be pretty obvious that the reason this one seems so, this, this loss seems so disheartening, so difficult for WB fans to understand is that, you know, previously it was like, oh, this is why they lost. This is this is these are the issues: roster depth, new players, new quarterback, figuring things out, facing a team that's definitively better than WVU or at least more talented at the time, more experienced. This one was just these are the same players making the same mistakes and doing the same thing from two years ago, and that's that's not acceptable in any profession. Like you know, if it, whether it's it's journalism or working at a McDonald's or playing football like you can't make the same mistakes and and you know year after year and and these were this team and we said it after the game 
that game it is one game. Let's be clear. It is just one game. But that one game just seemed like it was 2019 all over again. And I think that is why it's rubbing so many people the wrong way right now. I love that you put journalist, burger flipper, and football player all together. <laughs> I buy it. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't make the same mistakes you made to any job. If you're making the same mistakes two years and in, in year three of your job that you were in year one, you, you're not going to be around for very long. I'd agree. I think it's fair. It's a, again, we, we laugh at the analogy, but certainly the application is valid there too. Um, have you reviewed, rewatched, done any more looking into after watching for, I don't know, almost four hours. It felt like Saturday afternoon. It was a long one. Um, I, you know what I really want and I really missed to answer your question. Yes. Cause I was desperately trying to get a different angle, a better angle of the two long passing plays for Maryland. I mean, one, uh, Tago Viola won. We, uh, we talked about it after the game, but he he really did a nice job in the backfield. I think he made some 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 tough throws. He did a great job of extending plays, and sometimes his receivers were not helping him. But Jarrett and Demos, right? Demos, I think is how you pronounce it. That like they were they were electric. Like they, they you know they just caught the ball and they were moving. Seemed like they were very fast. But I was looking at those two long pass plays, the two touchdowns that were 60-plus yards, just to try to see those coverages, to see what it looked like back there, to see what exactly happened. Because as anybody who read the report card knows, like Sean Mahone got skewered by the PFF scouts. And it's always difficult. There was a certain defensive coordinator who told me once upon a time that he hated the grades and he hated, quite frankly, my analysis of what had happened in the game because neither I nor the scouts knew what the coverage call was. And if you don't know what the coverage call is, you don't know who to blame for that. That's and fair. So, so, and, and it's very fair. It's very true. And I, I really wanted to see those angles. And, man, you, I, we need to take some of that NIL money and get some of that, uh, you know, all 22 tape like the NFL does so we can see it in college because I think that's the only way you can really see – who did what and who was supposed to, maybe who was supposed to be where. I would, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I think the person's probably going to be on Porter. Yeah. For poor technique. Although man, leaving him alone, <laughs> I, I wonder if he was supposed to have a safety back there, but he didn't, he didn't play that one properly. I think everybody would agree. Second one. Yeah. That's a tricky one. Cause Mahone should be your headiest player back there. Did he just goof up at the worst time? I don't know, uh, but you're right. That's what makes it frustrating. And then, you can apply it to offense. I mentioned a couple of things in the, on the postgame pod that we don't know the call, but it appeared to be this. And then, again, you could watch in certain situations where if Dagey keeps it, he can run around the corner, but he might be under specific instructions to not do it, or it might just be a pure handoff. Um, I don't know. There's, there's so much that we don't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And I always kind of joke and say that football is not very hard. Um, the truth is it's a little bit harder than I make it out to be. But also it's hard to observe and make judgments and not know truly what should happen if you don't know what was called and those are two really good examples you mentioned there too um i do a few questions for you as i was watching here because i think the knock on it is how can you lose to maryland a team isn't very good um how would you rate the talent one side versus the other because people are saying that's not even a good maryland team saw a ton of speed certainly skill position players and while i know they didn't have the experience and, and we kind of you know played tug of war a little bit in our preview pod about 
their returning production versus returning experience, it seemed like they had a lot to work with, and they have recruited well the past few years. That's been the knock on Loxley. Gets guys on campus. What do you do with them? Some of those players were in motion and in action and impressed. Um, I'm not sure that's a, an eight-win team or anything. I like to see how they get their schedule. But first week, first game, everybody's fresh and spry. They looked like they had, again, speed, size, especially on defense. Um, I, I don't think there's any apologizing for Maryland's talent. Is is that fair? Or is West Virginia to be ashamed because it had the better roster off the bus and just didn't perform up to that level? No, I don't. You know, we... As you noted, we've talked about this a lot with Loxley, is that he always recruits extremely well. He's had very good classes at Maryland. They were very good classes at Maryland even before he got there. So this roster is loaded with talent. Um, I'm using the 24-7 sports team talent composite, which kind of keeps track of who's currently on the roster and what their ratings and rankings were coming out of high school or as transfers. And Maryland is ranked based off of that talent, that off of those ratings, ranked 34th in the country, number 34. Would you like to take a stab at where West Virginia is? I looked it up. I know the number. I was very oh. surprised, and I think it's a good answer. It, it 58th. Yeah. They are 58th compared. So if you ask me who's the more talented roster, even before the game, I would have said the more talented roster. And and I said it on the preview pod. So this isn't revisionist history because if you'll recall, and I think Maryland fans will get the last laugh here. I said something about how Maryland is, and then I said, but the difference here is Mike Loxley and brought up his record. You, uh, Mike Loxley, Homer, defended him um, and pointed out, you know, the, the tough situations that he had been put in as a head coach. And but I thought that, you know, West Virginia had a coaching advantage here. I thought that Maryland might have had a more athletic and talented roster. Maybe West Virginia had a little more experience on that roster and a better coaching staff. And that's why I thought West Virginia was going to win, not a blowout or anything. I think I predicted seven points maybe, like a one-score game just like this. But Maryland has talent. It just wasn't experienced, and I didn't trust the coaching staff. Yeah, good staff had a good plan. You know what to do with the talent. Like, they they used Tagovailoa properly. They used Demas and Jarrett properly. The running game, they figured out what to do in how to take advantage of the end. I thought that was fine. And again, I think that you're right. The the players on that side of the field were, were legitimate Big Ten, you know, college football players. And I think there's a, a, I don't know, sometimes you look at a coach's record or a team's history and say, well, they must not be very talented. Uh, I think we saw the opposite was true. Uh, last one, then we can get in the questions. Um, certainly four turnovers takes away four possessions. It takes points off the board once. It probably takes like between I don't know, I would say like 18 and 25 plays off the field, too. And if you look at what West Virginia was undone by, it was the amount of plays on defense. So if West Virginia not only keeps possession those four times, it probably gets at least a field goal on the interception in the end zone. It rings up, again, maybe like another two dozen plays on the three possessions it gave away. Uh, it saves the defense. I get that that's all important. And ultimately the difference, 10 points, four turnovers, four possessions, the plays that swung from one team to the other and, and the, the toll it took on West Virginia's defense, absolutely critical. I wonder if that is too fine a point. And I wonder if given those chances, those again, 18, 24 extra snaps, another crack at the end zone, whatever, does West Virginia's offense take account? Probably going to take at least a lead of two points, I think, if they get the field goal instead of the interception, because I believe they were down by one, right? Mm -hmm. Down by two? Whatever. They're, they're going to go up there if they get a field goal, but instead, 
interception, touchdown goes the other way, you're down by nine. They would have got a blown. I'm sorry. Um, but the other three possessions, I, I, I just don't know that you can assume that you're going to get points or do something productive on offense because I watched that offense for four quarters and thought, I'm not too confident what I'm seeing right now, too. Is, is the turnover thing that obvious, that acceptable an answer? Or is there enough of a space between those lines, so to speak, that you could read into different problems and you can't just assume that had they held onto the ball, they were going to be okay? Uh, real quick before I answer that, it, you were in the press box, so you didn't get to, to experience this. I was, I was watching on television, watching the game, and it was after that score for Maryland that went up nine. And I think there was still like almost seven minutes left in the game. And even though West Virginia had scored three touchdowns on their first, was it four possessions? The way the offense had looked over the last three quarters, I believe it was Mike Golick Jr. on, on, the, on the broadcast. Was it said something to the effect of, well, that should do it. Imagine that a nine point game with almost seven minutes left. And it, it's about, it feels like it's time to go ahead and just count out West Virginia's loss because the offense was that, was struggling that much at that point in the game. That's where it was. Well, um, since I was in the stadium, let me add this when that interception happened and people were trying to figure out, you know, was it, it was a touch of point you couldn't be certain it was a clean interception. Did he? maintain possession of the ground as a catch two feet in or one foot in whatever but once it was clear that maryland was celebrating and there was a turnover and the worst thing had happened there was a stream of gold from across me to the right there was a lot of gold but there were people who you could tell were filtering out of the stadium so i think that there was at least uh, an appreciable amount of west virginia fans that felt the same at that point which is not entirely encouraging because half a quarter left yeah um but to answer your question I don't know if it's as simple as just blaming the turnovers. I don't think it's just that. But every single one was such a – because the offense struggled, defense had these issues. But I think it's – it's we always talk about how important turnovers are, when they happen, and, and how they happen, where they happen. All four of those were – awful like the worst possible turnovers you could have because two of them were in the red zone which is a, a big no-no that is terrible you know you, you're about to get points and then you're not and then the other two were immediately after the defense got stops you know the first was the uh or not the first but the well the first was Jarrett Dagey's interception which was the very first play after West Virginia got stopped on fourth down and then the fumble on the punt return so twice twice there West Virginia is about to get the ball and then they just give it right back. So it, it just, it, it's hard to just say turnovers, but man, the, the, I feel like there's different levels, different severities of turnovers and West Virginia, all four of them were the worst kind. The best kind of fun is to take questions from the audience, provide our answers. I think we've talked enough about this game, Chris. Let's talk some more about the game. <laughs> well, Q&A, subscriber questions, our answers. We'll get to what we can. Again, over five pages and 100 comments. Most of these questions about what we have to get answers to, we'll get as many as we can. Then Chris will follow up with uh, extended answers um, in a mailbag for written form. Chris, where do we begin today? Let's start kind of right off the top with a, um, a general question from uh, Leighton here. Did WVU look improved in any area other than kick return? I can't say yes, just because 
we've talked so much about how it looked the same. I think that they're going to be better in some spots eventually, but I don't think we saw that in the first game. Um, I could sit here and try to get into the minutiae with you about certain things. I thought some of their running was potentially better. We just only saw one player carry the ball for fewer than five yards of carry and finish with 77 yards. So I can't say it was so good because they didn't lean on it. Didn't feel like it was that good that it could work. Um, I thought that the quarterback was pretty good early on, but devolved a little bit into familiar habits. Um, and then the defense with, with explanations we provided had some trouble. So it certainly wasn't up to the standard last year and then kicking the ball out of bounds, having trouble punting, even a special teams savant like myself wants to off our wants to argue on behalf of Austin Brinkman and fine snapping. Um, but that's been pretty steady for a couple of years too. So not even that was better. So I would have to say no right now. It'd be hard to say yes. I'm going to have to agree with you kind of go through everything and just not feeling great about much there. I mean, it, it was again, a lot of the same issues, quarterback play, passing play looked the same or worse. Running game looked the same or worse. Blocking looked the same or worse. Defense, same or worse. Even the kicking part. I mean, we saw what at least one go out of bounds. The one field goal attempt was a 23-yarder and looked like he might miss it. I mean, I, I don't know what it looked like there in person, but on TV it looked like I, I don't know what that kick was. I mean, it looked like they pulled somebody out of the stands the way it came off his foot. But it went through, so okay. But it makes me nervous moving forward. So I'm not sure there was any other spot on the field that was better or looked better, at least for this one game, than kick return. So I'm going to agree. But kind of related to that, also from Leighton, um, we've been hearing a lot about, oh, you know, fans piling on Neil Brown, fans piling on Jared Parker. From Leighton, when does Matt Moore start getting some heat? Offensive line coach for West Virginia. That's a good question. Um, and again, that's 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 a persistent issue here. Now, I, I don't I can't tell you that they struggle because of technique as much as maybe just strength and and a lot of the things that just come with time playing that position. When you look at where they've excelled the past two years, they've had older players. So their first year, um, they were better outside than inside, and they had Wickline and McKibbitts. Last year better inside than outside, and they were pretty pretty good inside last year relative to how they were on the outside last year. And that was young Frazier, Barrett was a man, and Mike Brown was a man. Those are two old, strong guys. But the most technical, no, certainly they have flaws. But they were strong and stout in the middle. And then this year, you know, everybody's back and should be better. You would be probably disappointed if you were hanging your hat on Brandon Yates to hold up better than he did Saturday. Parker Moore was okay. That's your edges. That wasn't very good. And they again, Maryland was big, so that was hard inside. Same things, just like they should be good. But Gamitter hadn't played a whole lot last year. Nestor's new, Frazier new at center. I don't know if I can answer that yet because what they did not have before, which was that experience, that maturity, that strength, a lot of the physical stuff, not the fundamental technique stuff. They had that now, or they at least have a, a building block to create something quicker than they have in the past. I would say um, it might come sooner than later if this continues to be an issue and it just looks like it has the past few years. Listen, the results look the same, but the personnel does not. The personnel is better. It is at a point now that they were hoping to get to. Um, if it does not produce the results, then I think that's a fair 
that's a fair target for some questions and criticism, sure, because that's the one thing that they're kind of waiting to come along and, and they thought they had it closer to where they wanted it to be. They've said before, it's not what it needs to be. We're a year away. But if it's not there in, in time, I'll have to talk about it. Follow up from me. Uh, again, talk this preseason. Like I feel like we have every every season of, yeah, got eight offensive linemen. And, and Matt Moore said he felt comfortable with eight in a an interview with the media. I think it was about second week of fall camp. And then listed off like 10 players. Your snap count chart shows five players playing all but eight snaps with Wyatt Milam getting the eight and you know struggling as we saw. I mean, he is a true freshman, very first game, so it's no 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 shame there, but only five, basically. Thoughts? I, I don't want to be mean. I just don't know how much you can believe that they say. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's not like jaded journalist or, or a smart aleck journalist, whatever. But I mean, how many times have they talked somebody up and we haven't even seen a snap from that player or that player get a catch or a tackle or, or anything like that? Uh, I was looking back at this and and they said, like, the only way we're going to know about these guys in the defensive line is to play them. They played Jalen Thornton four snaps. Lanell Carr played one, I think. That's I mean, four. Four. That okay. Was it, yeah. Yeah. So. There's Jalen Thornton, they were really happy with. And you know what? He's the backup because he earned it. He's had a great camp. I don't know how that you, you, that again, the first game is a bit of an outlier because you're fresh. You don't have anything before the game wearing you down. And the West Virginia has, again, probably half a game of football next week. So you can go that a little bit further, but that doesn't take away from the fact that those guys didn't get a chance to, to play. And I, I just, I'd have a hard time holding that against them because I just don't take that stuff very seriously. Like, Caden Prather's going to play. You guys will be really impressed. One snap. Um, Sam Brown had a great camp. No snaps. Uh, Kerry Martin is our backup safety. He'll be in the game. Didn't play defense. You can go on a lot of those examples. I'm not saying that, like, they deceived us or anything like that, but maybe just don't take as much out of those answers to questions, again, asked about versus talked about. Try to draw that line of separation. They were asked about a lot of players, and they give answers to the questions. I'm not sure that they talked about so many players that maybe didn't play a lot or at all, except that they said that we have to play these guys to figure them out. We didn't see that. Didn't see Jordan White. Uh, didn't see the flexing of the depth on the defensive line. That surprised me a little bit, but listen, they, they may have explanations for that, and it could be as simple as no game before and not much of a game after. I mean, I mean, it's just – I know I asked the question, but it's – it's just coach speak is what it is. It's a preseason coach speak and, and you have to read between the lines and, and you're right. I, you're, I've kind of taken your, your statement there to heart over the last few years, the, the talked about and asked about aspect of these things. That, that's something you really truly have to pay attention to. Um, if a coach goes out of their way to bring up a person or a subject, that is something of note. If they're just answering a question from somebody in the media take it with a grain of salt because I think we, we saw that with the offensive line, even the defensive line. I was stunned. I, I thought I felt like I saw them in there more, you, you know, I thought that I saw a little more rotation, but 240 snaps between three off, uh, defensive line positions, 208 to the starters. That is, a, I mean, that's a lot. No, it can't that happen a lot. And that especially when, happen. especially when you're doing like the 
three and four man rush and asking them to do so much. Yeah, it appears that they're at their best when just three and then the bandit come. Otherwise, yeah, they're they're going to have a harder time, I think, covering things up in the back. But which means you're going to have they're going to have their foot down a bunch, and they're going to need to take a blow every now and then. Uh, from Rocco Ear, for Mike, can you elaborate on Garrett Green throwing on the sideline? Any knowledge you can give us as to why and what the thought process was for the coaching staff? I, I will tell you this too: um, people who did and did not hear the podcast and who were at the game have contacted me and said, was green going in? Did you ask about it? Did you see this? It wasn't just me. Apparently this was pretty clear and people were excited that we're seeing it. So it wasn't, it wasn't just a thing where, again, I, I joked, but I saw like his hair bouncing up and down the sideline. He has long flowing hair and I saw him moving and you could tell he was with a purpose going from where he had been to get his helmet or to get a ball and then quickly fire off some passes with Will Crowder um, because the backup quarterbacks probably hang out together during the game and the receivers are off doing their own thing. So what I'm reading there is I got to get somebody to catch these passes from me. Who's nearby Crowder bang fire off a few snaps. Um, I didn't, I didn't see him take snaps anybody from anybody, which sometimes when a quarterback's going in, he'll, you'll see like he'll get under center or he'll have somebody fire the ball back to him because he's going to have to take snaps. Uh, I didn't see that. So that's that's one thing I've thought about since then, because I, I have tried to evaluate this. Did I did I make a bigger deal out of it? Because if they didn't tend to put green in and didn't or if they warmed green up just in case and they didn't, I think that's nevertheless important because that shows where the level of faith is. And not only him, but in Daigie as well. So the trouble is you can't possibly ask that question now. Um I don't know if I regret not asking after the game because I don't know where you put Green in. I think we talked about that. Do you put him in when they're down by nine? Do you put him in after Daigie leads a field goal drive and they're they got to get a touchdown? They're down by six at that point. I don't I don't know if you can do that to Garrett Green at that point. But the point is, he was getting ready before that. So to answer the question, I saw him hustle from point A to point B, get a ball, start throwing. Um, I saw him hug Will Crowder. I saw. I don't know if it was a GA or somebody else who, but it wasn't a person in uniform. And I don't think it was an assistant coach come over, pat him on the head, talk to him. And then players are coming by and we're tapping on the shoulder pads. I thought he was going in. I texted you, Chris. And I said, I think they're about to put green in. He was definitely getting ready, but he also stayed warm. Um, that doesn't happen during the game. Like he's got to be watching things. He's got to be standing next to the coaches in case he, in case he has to go in because someone lost a helmet or rolled an ankle or whatever. Um, it didn't happen, but he was getting warm and, to me, the context was this could happen. Can I tell you that it was? No, probably should have asked. I don't think you're going to get an answer if you do ask about it now. But just watching it again, using your eyes, it looked everything to me like he was getting ready to go in. It might have been, hey, get loose. He's got one drive left. Or it might have been, hey, you're going in right now. Or, hey, we're going to run that package. It could have been anything. But I think they had some intent of using him. On a related note, I think we had about – two dozen, three dozen questions relating to Green and Daigie and starter, not starter. When does a switch happen? Does a switch happen? Um, so kind of lump some of those into one here. And I want to ask you this uh, to try to narrow it a little bit. Because you mentioned the timing was tough during that game. You know, do you put them in when West Virginia is up one, down two, trying to win the game? Do you really make a change at that point? Um, do you really make a change right before a game against Long Island when just about any quarterback is going to look amazing? Or do you let Daigie start 
And two, if Diggy does start, does Green get his reps with the first team, which I think is important to emphasize here. Yeah, um, I'm looking at my notes here, too. West Virginia got the ball back in pretty good field position. Um, They might have wanted to go with Daigie there because he can get us closer. Um, That might have been another explanation. You know what? Shorter field, the veteran's got a chance, or, you know, he's good at this one script we have from the 40 in or something like that. It might have been something like that. I don't know. I just think they were going to use him. Um, I wouldn't – we talked about this. Um, I would not start – Daggy or Green, oh boy, how about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would not start Green for two reasons. Um, one, you you can't put that genie back in the bottle. You you probably decimate Daggy's confidence and the that of those around him. And then if Green doesn't perform, asking Daggy to come back out there again is tough. It's tough. Um, and then you're right. What is Green gonna do? that would impress you against Long Island that is mobile and would apply to the tech game. It's, it's a bit of fool's gold for me. So I don't know if that's the best idea. What I would do is I'd play him early. I'm not saying that you start a quarterback rotation that is mobile and you could do that against your remaining 10 opponents, but you know, every third series or something like that, or give him the first series of the second quarter. But I don't know that you get anything out of playing Daggy the final you know, 16, 17, 18 minutes of the game. I don't know that you get anything out of playing him just the third quarter when it's 45 to six. I would like to see him in there against the starters. Again, not a great evaluation, certainly for the team that follows, but it's the best defense that Long Island can give you. And then more importantly, he's playing with the starters because if he goes in with the B team and the guys who are just being able to play their one game of the year because it's a blowout, that's not what he's going to be working with if and when he does have to go into a game. So I would get him in in the first quarter. I don't know if it's second drive. I don't know if it's third drive or whatever, but I would definitely get him in the game in the first quarter, and I'd make sure he gets a lot of action with that first team. And do you lose Daigie? Do you lose the locker room? I've heard that stuff. I don't care. If you're going to do this, commit to it. That's your job. Make it work. Figure it out. Um, I don't think it's starting him is the best idea, but I think there's a way to effectively blend him in to get him quality reps without, you know, signing the alarm that we have a quarterback controversy here. They're going to have to be really particular about how they do that, but there's a way to do it. Figure it out. Be effective. Be creative. Don't be disruptive. Don't distract from what has to happen to keep everything on track. But you got to see what the guy has. Yeah, you can't you can't be concerned about hurting someone's feelings at this point. And, and I mean, even Neil Brown knows that because he talked about uh, when he was talking about giving the scholarships to the walk-ons. He said it was one of the few times that, you know, he really gets to deliver good news because usually when he's having these talks with players and, and, and such, it's, hey, you're redshirting. Hey, you're, you lost the starting job. Hey, you're going to be a backup or you're going to the developmental team. So it, he knows the job. He knows what has to be done, when it has to be done. So I don't think that should be a factor. But you're right. He has to get first team reps. Has to like like in some way you can't you cannot put him in there with second team reps or or with only the second team offense if you think that he might play down the road. Like whether you think he's going to play in week three or he's your starter right away, or you might not see him till week eight. 
you can't put him out there with the second team or third team or whatever. You got to get him in there with the guys on the first team to see what he can do and, and, and try it out. Um, next question. Thought this was a good one from Nick One Stern. Did the team play to their strengths today? And if so, what were they? If they weren't able to play with their strengths, how did they? How did Maryland force WVU to play outside of their strengths? And he said, edits it and says, maybe I should start with. And here's the question. Do we know what WVU's strengths are? Michael? Yeah, that was going to be my answer when I began to read that question, is that I can't say yes because does it exist and what is it? I think they want to be balanced and they want to they want to make you come to the line of scrimmage and say, I don't know if they're going to run or pass here, which is good. That's probably the goal for everybody. But I also don't know what they go to when they have to mount a drive or to get, you know, five yards on third and five or whatever. Like there's – it's hard to identify that. And again, that might be good too. If you're hard to predict, that's fine. There were times, I will say this, there were times that I thought I knew it was coming and I didn't see it. So that's good. Like if you watch them for two years, you can establish some patterns. For example, when they called the timeout on a third down, they were trying to run Isaiah Esdale on the field and he had, I believe the short side. Um, so he was on the, the field side, or sorry, the boundary side, not the field side. And they tried to run him on and run Sean Ryan off. And they were in the red zone, and I was thinking, all right, well, what they're and they had to call a timeout. And I'm thinking, all right, well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Esdale on the field because he runs the fade pattern very well. He's got great hands, and Daigie has rapport with him. And I was sure that was what was coming. I was like, that's an okay timeout. Get your personnel in the field, run the play that I've seen you run, whether it's in practice or in the game. They didn't do it, which is good, right? Um, because I should not be calling out your plays. <laughs> so maybe, maybe there is some gift in that we can't identify what a strength is because maybe they just feel confident enough about some stuff. But I think that what they'd like to do is to run Lady Brown more than 16 times in a game and get him more than 20 touches, especially when, again, no game before this and half a game after. I just didn't think that was a very good number. So that makes me wonder, like, what they thought they had. Were they going to be able to distribute the ball to different receivers? Didn't really see that. A lot of their stuff was inside, too. They weren't very effective on the perimeter offensively. They don't really tempo to try to get into a rhythm or anything like that. I did like their motion and their pre-snap stuff, but that was just because it was man-to-man, I think. I don't think it's because that's what they're going to do all the time. That was just to kind of solve Maryland's defense and to create some matchups or get some momentum before the snap. So to answer your question, like, I don't know that I saw it. I don't know what it is. I'm not convinced that's a bad thing, though. It's not great. Don't get me wrong. But, like, I don't (laughs) think that that means it's bad. Just because you're not excellent at something doesn't mean you're not good at a bunch of things. Yeah, looking at that, I, I agree with you with the numbers on Letty Brown. And I think during the three key matchups piece I put out Saturday morning, uh, I believe my exact quote was, uh, running the ball and dinking and dunking in the passing game is not the sexiest thing, but it's what's most effective against Maryland. Uh, Letty Brown, I think he had 100 yards and three touchdowns in the first half. And Jared Diggy, when he threw... Less than 10 yards and between the numbers. So dink and dunk, 16 of 21 for 171 yards and a touchdown. Like it was there. That was the stuff Maryland gives up. They kind of went to it. And then I think, you know, Mar- then Maryland just went straight like, hey, we have eight in the box, elite, like in a ninth that's kind of hovering close by. And instead of kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know how you, you, I mean, 
I don't know what the answer is, but I'm not the one being paid handsomely to figure that out. But West Virginia kind of just went, oh, they got eight in the box, so we got to go spread and throw deep. And that's just not something West Virginia could do very well. So I think they can dink and dunk and run the ball decently well, but they just abandoned it like the very first time that Maryland said, all right, here's eight in the box. Do something else. You got to beat us one-on-one with your outside receivers. And that was it. And and then that was when West Virginia's offense just sputtered to a stop. Yeah, they're about 50-50 in in 10 personnel and 11 personnel. Uh, um, I think Banks played 32 snaps. They had 65. So, yeah, right about half and half, which means they really missed their lock because they would have gone into 11 personnel more. They can't run the ball, really, out of 10 personnel. They need that back in there, uh, that tight end in there, to do something with it. Um, I thought they would be better with their speed and their motion and trying to do stuff out of, you know, that that 10 personnel, they went empty a couple of times and I thought it looked good, but like it became pretty clear they weren't going to run it when they didn't have a tight end in, I think. And I think Maryland schemed to that and then just said, you can try to run without a tight end. We'll, we'll figure it out. And they did. And that became pretty, pretty apparent that they were only going to pass when they were in the 10 personnel. They had a hard time running when they didn't have a tight end in. Uh, also, going back to a previous question, something that was better, I liked Letty Brown as a receiver. They, yeah. they, had good, they had some good ideas. They moved him around. They lined him up in different spots. They 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 designed things for him. I don't know that I don't know how many catches he would get, but like the number fifty kind of intrigues me. Like I don't think that's crazy. That's that's four or five catches a game. Um, I think he could probably end up there because they have ideas and he certainly has the ability. So to go back to a previous question, that did look better. Um, but before we get to, I don't want to say a real question, but your thoughts on. Maryland's uh, social media account really just kind of taking the heat to West Virginia. We had a few people bring this up. I didn't get the Drake album because I didn't know what that meant until someone explained it to me. So that that was fine. I'm sure they hit the audience better than it hit me. Uh, Country woes is kind of funny, but I'm all for social media violence. It's fine. I'm with it too. I, I've seen I'm seeing a lot more of it lately, and it's not like West Virginia hasn't done it. I believe the first thing that popped to my mind was the uh, basketball Twitter doing it when what was it? Richmond came to town, and it was like. The moment the horn sounded to end the game, there was a tweet of, I believe, it, you know, it was like somebody stepping on a spider, squishing it and, and all that. So, I mean, hey, we talk about one of the great things about these rivalry games is is it being a rivalry game and having fans and everybody involved kind of hating, like yep. sport, sports hating the opponent. That's part of it. You can't, you know, that that's part of the reason everybody enjoys it and, and you can't not be down with it when it comes your way. So um, moving on to some other questions. Somebody else you didn't see much of, if at all, Sam Brown. Thoughts, anything you've heard from this this preseason? Uh, you know, a couple people asked about him. Um, yeah, I've heard he was in a great space and he was learning how to become a, a football player at this level and doing was what it, what doing what was needed and what it takes to learn how to practice, to show up on time, to perform in a way that gives you a chance on Saturdays. Like, I asked about him early in the preseason. It came up later. I don't know if I was asked about, talked about. I know I asked about it because I was of the mind that they had to get pops on the outside, and it's not coming from Ryan and Isdale. They're dependable players who can do things for you, but your your splashes are going to come from guys like Wright and James, and I would presume – uh, I said James because I think he he does have the potential to to get down the field. He's fast. He can move. 
Um, but also we heard Prather was making a ton of plays for, you know, like for a true freshman, but like was making plays and that Brown, Brown just has juice. And I don't know that it's any good in the sideline. So it's a frustrating thing for you all, I'm sure. But I would have to think to some extent it is for the coaches because they know what he can do. They recruited him. They've seen him. Um, they want him to hit a certain point where they can play him. But I mean, at some point, you have to know, and I don't like when he's been in games, he's been productive. The first game last year and the last game last year were really the times that they stretched him out because they had to, and he produced. It wasn't like four catches for 110 yards and a touchdown, but throw the ball to him, catch it. And then if he can get by a corner or if he can catch a ball and go, like the offense needs that. So I don't know that if you just play him because you need to and he hasn't earned it, but like he has to get special attention so that. He does earn it. Like, you have to do something to get him on the field. Prather, I have no idea. I'm sure that question will come up. I don't know what happened. He played one snap. I don't even remember him on the field. But that's your four-star, 6'4", 200-pound receiver who everybody was talking about. And then Bryce Ford Wheaton, who is just kind of Bryce Ford Wheaton at this point, played all but, I think, like three snaps, which is not what the numbers would tell you when you look at the stats. So the receiver thing is very is, is curious. I think they said they were going to play as many as it took. That was Jared Parker's line. It, it required more than they played. I think. Yeah. The, the receiver thing was, was bothering me early. I, you know, I think last year it, we talked a lot about it and I kept making a point of the biggest issue I had was not the play of the players or how the guys were doing or the responses or anything, but the fact that, there didn't seem to be any accountability that a guy could drop a ball, drop a ball, drop a ball, run a bad route and still be sent out there. And I was assured by a capital S someone that that, that was not going to be the case moving forward, that they, I don't, wouldn't say that they, you know, that was something that was admitted that they weren't account holding guys accountable. I think everybody holds them accountable. It's just a matter of, let's say how much, how accountable you want to hold them and, and what your options are behind them, to be quite honest. Like, it's one thing to hold somebody accountable to then put in somebody you don't trust. Uh, you don't want to do that. But it right there, right off the bat, we saw, you know, a couple drops from Sam James and it was still out there. And granted, he came, to James's credit, came out and made a great catch on that deep ball. Um, but not a lot of depth at receiver. When we, I, I don't know about you personally, Mike, but me, I, I felt like that was a position where I thought there were more options and that they could have gone eight deep. And, and really kind of put the pressure on everybody to make plays or get out of the way. And and we didn't see it. And I don't think anybody in particular was, like, dominant at the receiver position in that game. No. I mean, I thought Sean – to be honest, I thought Sean Ryan – and <laughs> the, the one position where the guys were truly rotating, the one receiver position where the guys were truly rotating, Sean Ryan and Isaiah Esdale, I thought they both played pretty darn well. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. not not great, but I thought, like, it's like, hey, the – the one spot where there was true competition, those guys played well. Yeah, and I, that's that's maybe a strike against Sam Brown. How many snaps are there for him? Like, if those guys are playing well and they're in a rotation, then they're going to rotate in and out. So, yeah, I think that's okay. And those guys do things away from the ball too. Like, they're I think they're good blockers, and they they make sure that their defenders can get in by a selling pass on on a run, things like that. So, I, I just watched him because I like watching Esdale. I'm curious about Ryan because he looks like he's like, going to be a good player. I thought he was good in the times I saw him in the preseason. But if you are rotating people in. Is there is there not room for a third? I don't know. To, and to be more direct in the question, I haven't heard anything about Brown. Like I hear stuff about people all the time, or I'll get messages, or I'll just talk to somebody and ask, "Hey, how's this person? You know, who do you like?" 
And, and you know, you'll hear things about like a Jordan White. That's one name that kept coming up. You'll hear things about Caden Prather. Brown's name doesn't come up, but like it's just that like the one thing I have heard is that until he learns how to practice, he's not going to get a chance. But like if not now, when? Like how do you get that light to come on? Is that is that coaching? Like do you do you treat him differently to get him to earn it? And is he worth it? That's the one thing we don't know. <laughs> like maybe that maybe it's just not worth the trouble. Maybe like he's not dependable and you know he fumbles or he drops it or he blows up assignments. And if that's the case, then he doesn't belong out there. So. It's frustrating, but again, we don't know. We don't know. There might be a valid explanation, but I'd just like to see him on the field and see what he can do. And maybe if he gets a taste, maybe it works in reverse. And he says, you know, I like it out here. I need to do everything I can to get myself out here more. Um, Again, another question that came from several people uh, kind of in and around the kicking situation, kickoffs and punting. And are you satisfied with what they were trying to do? Did you get the sense that, their goal was to kick it kind of in that inside the 10 to the left-hand side every single time. I mean, I know obviously one ended up out of bounds. Um, a couple of them were line drives right to the guy, giving him a, a head start. What, what did you think overall of that special teams plan and play? I think they were a little worried about Jarrett and didn't want to attempt it. So they did some things to, to remove the risk. I'm not sure they were all executed perfectly. Certainly winging one out of bounds wasn't the idea. I don't think Evans Daly is their best kickoff guy. I don't. You know what? I was wondering that too. Like he did not win the kickoff. They 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 chose leg over him last year as the kickoff guy. And the only thing that's happened since then is Staley tore his ACL and needed knee surgery. Staley so tore his ACL covering a kick too. Yeah. So I, I, I'm trying to figure out how that then resulted in, you know. Him being the kickoff guy. I mean, we we don't see too much of practice in the preseason. So, you know, maybe he has been kicking it that well. It it did surprise me, though, when that first depth chart came out that he was the kickoff guy. Yeah, I just don't know how they do that one. They're they're super detailed on everything and they they log everything. And and Jeff Kuhn said that, like, there there is no such thing as like a 50-50 because the data bears it out. So the best kickoff guy and the best punter is going to be obvious because it's going to be. Proven true, I guess, by performance over over camp. Right. Do they do the same thing on kickoffs? Are they just saying we don't want Sumter kicking off or we don't want leg kicking off because that's our kicker and our punter? And what if he gets popped making a tackle? I don't know. I mean, but then again, like I, I just from what I've seen and what I've heard, Danny King has the kickoffs down and he puts it into the end zone, but he didn't travel. So and he's from Maryland, so maybe there were and that they had room, like they could bring more people than seventy. We learn. So they could have, but they didn't bring him. Uh, I don't I don't know. I think that's a, something they're going to have to do. But then again, were they worried about Jarrett? Do they have a scheme? And again, there there are people who say it's it's more tempting to kick the ball into the end zone and take the touchback. However, um, it's easier to put it into that bucket, like between the the numbers and the hash or between the, you know, in the, the, the I forget what they call it, the inside quarter or something like that, where it's from the, the number to the pylon or whatever like that. And then just get your kick team down there because you're putting them in a corner and you're making them, you're cutting the field into like 20% of it instead of hundred percent of it. You're, you're aiming for where you want to go and you're sending your team there. That, that just may be their preference given who they have. I don't know. It's, it's a coaching thing, but like I, I, I love first and 25 without having to tackle anybody or first and 10 from the 25 without having to tackle anybody. If I can put it into and through the end zone, I'm doing that. I'm not even messing around with kickoff returns. Just put it into the end zone. If I have a guy who can do it, do it, which means they 
maybe don't have one that they trust. I'm 100% with you on that. I, I would. I would. If I had a guy that could put it in the end zone, he's my kickoff guy. I don't care who he is. Just put it, just put it at the back of the end zone and forget it. I don't straight ahead. Try to try to kick it through the uprights. That's what I tell him. Um, I don't know how much longer we're going to go, but this one, this one seemed kind of on the nose here uh, and maybe a little uh, somber or maybe we can make it a little more uplifting uh, to, to end it. Who knows? But uh, SBWVU. Two-part question. Number one, aside from the recruiting class, what is something tangible from the Neil Brown era that indicates fans should trust the climb? They don't get blown out. I mean, Missouri. Mm, Iowa State. Iowa State. Like, they, they compete. I would say that. And then there were times where they maybe shouldn't have had as much inspiration and they'd competed. I, I would say that. That's, that's a whole big part of it you can have um great plays you can have great players but if you can't respond to stuff and if you can't just outwill out want or refuse to be outwilled and outwanted you know the other team wants it too but if you can hang in there for four quarters for 12 games that's good and, and with rare exception um they've competed and they've and they've been in games um the offense is frustrating i'm sure um the defense i think can be good it's not as strong today as it was last year, but it can get there again. But even with those those drawbacks and all the turnovers, they were in that game at the end. And they, if they get a stop on that Tago Bailoa run, and they don't get cracked for 53 yards, which really skewed the stats at the end of the game, um, they may get the ball back with a chance to win. Just kind of crazy when you consider that you have four turnovers. And again, you know, 18, 24 plays, who knows how much yardage, who knows how much damage they could have done to the Maryland defense. You know, the whole story may be different. So that is one thing there. It, it hasn't been easy as five and seven in a pandemic, you know, going through it without players practicing or playing. And they just don't get blown out. I think that's important because you, you we've looked at teams in the past here that just kind of folded it up. Even when they got beat badly the first year, like there's a game that got away from them against Iowa State or Texas. I think they just ran out of gas and ran out of time. I don't think that they ran out of a want in those games. Second part of that SBWU question. What can fans look to as a reason to be excited for the rest of the year? Offense has to get better. Like it can't, it's not going to plateau. I don't think if the plateau like already they're bad. So I think you can look forward to ingenuity and just saying like, that was not good enough. Um, I, I don't think Daigie was that bad in camp. I, I just can't believe that we relied to and deceived so confidently for so long. I just think it surprised them. I think he's much more like the person who was eight for 10 with a throwaway and a drop and looked like he was in control and then got rattled and, and just reverted. And I think that surprised them. I think that surprised the coaches. And maybe they were affected by that, too, with some of their plays. And like, oh, boy, we got to get to the halftime here. That, that that very well could be an explanation, not an excuse. But, like, I think that they were probably surprised. The player, the coaches, the teammates, that they saw the ghost of Jared Dagey passed. And they thought that maybe they were beyond that. I think that he's going to be more like the 8-for-10 guy um, than he is going to be the guy that Looked like his old self. I think that there are improvements. I just can't believe that he was that good for so long behind closed doors. And then when he got out in front of everybody, he reverted. I just don't believe that. I may be dead wrong. And if it is, you're not going to be mad at me, I promise, right, for saying it. So I, I think that their offense is going to get better. I think if they get Tony Mathis involved, I think if they hand the ball to literally anybody else but Letty Brown, there's a reason to be curious and excited. And then I just don't think that Prather and Brown, Prather in particular, belong on the sideline. I think there's a way to get it. And 
Miss out our Lachlan is bad. I don't think they can run the ball 10 personnel and they can't keep TJ Banks in the field. And apparently Charles Finley isn't ready to play. I just think that the offense is going to get better. How much better, you know, is it 35 points a game? Unlikely, but it's just not acceptable for a head coach to have five 30 point games in 23 opportunities. And the head coach knows that. And that number grows. That's bad. It becomes something that is held against you. And it becomes the thing that you have to reverse. So I can't imagine that he's focused on anything else beyond how do we get more points because they're going to need him in this conference. Can't have 24 repeatedly. That's five games in a row with 24 fewer points. Uh, <clears throat> one more real quick because I had a, I saw a few other people ask the same one. I'm trying, I'm trying to hit the questions that multiple people asked um, for the podcast here. Again, this, is, this got asked five different ways, but basically the same thing. Who is calling the plays on offense for West Virginia? And what's the next step if the offense doesn't figure it out? Do, does the play calling change hands? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Does it matter? I, it doesn't matter to me who is calling plays. It matters to me, it, again, a kind of accountability. Like, if you want to look at me and say that, we're not going to tell you who's calling plays, but person A was calling plays and the offense wasn't working, so now person B is calling plays. I, I mean, I, I'm like you. I want as much information as possible so that yeah. I wouldn't be thrilled about that. But I do believe if it's – if, again, one game, one game, this is one game, this is one game, but if we get to seven, eight games into the season with this or even like four or five and it's, it's similar, it – deserves to be asked what's being changed you, you know you can't keep doing the same thing so what's being changed and there are different ways you can change it you can change what you're calling you can change who is out there running said calls and who is making the calls so you have to change one of those three things two of these all three of those things until you find out what works so if we're not seeing changes in personnel and we're not seeing changes in the type of plays, it, it's a question of who it, is there going to be a change in who is calling the plays? Well, Jared Parker's up in the sky for games. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's calling plays. Because is he signaling it into somebody who's signaling it in? That seems inefficient. Maybe that's why they burn timeouts. I don't know. But if he's up on the box, I, I don't think that that works. I think Brown's calling the plays. And I think that when Brown wants to dial in, this is the way it's been. So I'm assuming it is. I haven't really thought of it. I have no reason to think that Neil Brown isn't calling the plays, but I would assume that before a series Parker says, Hey, I've seen this on first down. Hey, on that last second short, we had, I saw this. So be ready for a couple of if then scenarios. I'm sure that stuff's talked about. They communicate. um, Listen, when we get across the 30 here, here's what we were good at in practice. Here's what we like on our script. Here's where Maryland's vulnerable. um, When we get into our, 11 personnel, whatever. I'm sure that they communicate it, but I think Brown triggers it. So to be honest with you, like the best coaches and coaching staffs, they do their work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They travel or they walk through on Friday and they just let it roll on Saturday. So calling plays, that's a title and that's an act. But what happens on Saturday, I think it's more important about who's in the conversation Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What's our game plan? What do we like? What are we good at in practice? What do we need to cut from our script Um, if parker is or isn't involved in that if reagan is or isn't involved in that if scott isn't involved in that um is or isn't involved in that 
that's what you evaluate. I think the person calling it is just the person who's pulling the strings based on those conversations. So I would think that maybe blending in who is informing those choices is, is probably what you have to look at there. Who's actually calling it. Ultimately it comes down to one guy and it's going to be the head coach, man. These head coaches like to do that. They don't want to go up the power. They, they, they rose from a group of five job or an FCS job. And now they're a power five head coach because of their play calls and offense, their designs and offense. I don't think they want to get rid of that. And it's hard to blame them. Um, I have no I idea that, what happens in the red zone either, by the way. I have no idea what happens. Yeah. In the I was going to say, everybody, oh, hey, you know what we're asking? It's up to them to actually tell us what's going on. Which and, they did. Remember that? Remember them trying to explain how they call plays in the red yeah. zone last year? You need you needed like an abacus and a, and a, and a Sherpa to get to the yeah. answer. It was crazy. It was one of the best non-answers answers I've seen at WVU. And, and um, again, there's, there's only so much you can ask and only so much they're going to tell. And that's one of those situations where kind of go off what they tell us, kind of what we know, kind of what we think. And as you noted, if Jared Parker is in the box, it's hard to call plays from the box, especially with the way they run the offense. I mean, you see, for those who were watching on TV at home, you saw the assistant coaches, I believe, and GAs. I believe it was Trickett, uh, Marshall, and I didn't catch the other guy, but wearing three different color West Virginia shirts. Amazing. It, you know, green, red, and something else. Because I think it, it caught me so off guard. I think it was somewhere in the first quarter, and I saw West Virginia make a good play, and this guy on in a red shirt, on the West Virginia sideline, grabbed the West Virginia player, and I was like, what the hell is that Maryland guy doing? And it was West Virginia assistant coach wearing his red shirt for the play calling. Um, but it, it's hard for me to kind of fathom, as you noted, like, okay, so he's going to signal it in from the box, call it in from the box to the sideline that then gets signaled in and then sent over. Um, it's a lot. I, I Who knows? But for me, it's important that there's accountability, and if there, there's three different ways you can change and improve an offense, and it's what plays are called, who calls the plays, and who runs the plays. And you got to sample all three if you still haven't found an answer. Yeah, I don't want to be flippant by saying doesn't matter because it does. Obviously, like if the person who was ultimately, you know, pulling the cord and sending a play in. If the, if the plays aren't working, then that has to be evaluated. But, like, I wonder about our obsession with that as fans or as media because the fact that it stinks is the problem, right? And I think sometimes when, you, when you're worried so much about when, – when you get the solutions wrong, that's one thing. But when you, when you can't identify what the problem is, that's the other. That When you can't spot the problem, that's the issue sometimes. And I would be more worried about, like, why the plays aren't working than who's calling them. But then again, you could reverse engineer that too and say, well, these plays aren't working because they're not designed to work or they're not being put in the right down at distances. So that that's one thing I, I guess that you probably have to track. You're right. If we're still asking and answering this question when they're, I don't know, when they're one and three, when they're two and four, whatever, I'm not saying they will be, but like that's the situation that becomes a little more dire. And you say, listen, this must be asked about because this has to be addressed or it hasn't been addressed or it has been addressed and it hasn't worked. But who's making the soup? <laughs> don't know. Um, there was one more question here that which will sign us off and lead us into the next thing. Uh, is text from text from game day still a thing? God, I hope it is. Yeah, it is. And it's up right now. So if you're listening to this and you haven't read it, go read it and uh, make sure you get that number. If you, if you want to be involved and you can add some, uh, add some of your insight, I guess is what we'll call it. 
mm-hmm. um, because it was is another doozy. Uh, I, I feel like I hate to I hate to say it, but the uh, the games where West Virginia they don't have to necessarily lose, but the ones where it, it gets ugly, there's some ugly plays or it's tight. That's when the, the real good stuff shows up in text from game day. So make sure you check that out. Uh, and Mike and I we have our the rest of the stuff this week. We got the commit tracker up this morning as well. Um, yesterday we had the report cards from PFF, snap counts, uh, Neil Brown updates. Um, later in the week, you know, we get to talk to Neil Brown and assistant coaches and players on Tuesday. We'll have updates from them throughout the week, video. Uh, you know what? Else is, co- uh, else is coming Thursday. Kudos to you. Kudos to me. Charity bets off to a hot start this year. Uh, three one and one on the week. Uh, Mike's parlay hits big. That was lovely. Uh, I went two zero oh, and one with one push because I think uh, the it was the Pitt UMass game. I had plus forty four and they ended up winning by forty four. So that pushed, got my money back. Uh, only loser was that boards bet of UNC minus five and a half over Tech, which. We warned them against. We, you warned them. You said, and it's one of those things. Whenever you see a line that is too good, and that line was too good, Vegas knows something. Vegas knows something. They're trying to bait, bait you into that. But you know what's great, Mike? Is that this week, I took all of our bets, and I made them in real life. Except I live in Virginia, and I am not allowed, per law, to bet on Virginia Tech. The game was not in my app, unavailable to me. So I didn't lose anything. So sorry, board bets. Not not great, but I ended up okay. Thank with a kudos to Michael and his uh, Randy Edsel Beach House, Randy Edsel Memorial Beach House. Uh, after this season, by the way, he came through again. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> holy cross, holy cross, holy crap, holy cross. Unbelievable. That was the easiest. Uh, they're not going to outscore a team by what 31 and a half or something. I forget what it was. It was nuts. Um, let's take a second and praise my parlay. You okay. It, it, you had me nervous. Everything but the Purdue game here. Cause I think the halftime Ohio state, Minnesota was not on pace for the over. I don't think. And then it easily got there. But. Yeah. It got a little, I, I had a feeling it would get a little while, a little shoot daddy. Um, but that wasn't what I was expecting in the first half. Um, but that went over. Purdue survived. That was dicey at the end of the game, but they got away and they they, they made some plays and scored when they had to. Um, I was about to. I was questioning my decisions when <laughs> when Cal came out, looked fantastic, fourteen nothing, and Nevada's defense, which is supposed to be very good, could not tackle. And I'm thinking I'm going to lose it on the ten thirty kickoff on a Saturday night. Got to be kidding me. And then. Nevada's good. I just just watch them. They're good. They have a really good quarterback. They have skill position. Their defense is good. They shut that team down. And then it got it got weird because it was a. I'm trying to think of what the spread was. They were down by eight, I think. You know, they're down by five. And I'm thinking, oh my god, Cal's ball. Cal's gonna score. You would definitely go for two. They're gonna be up three, and I'm gonna push. And I'm like living and dying on <laughs> Cal's offense <laughs> at like 12:40 at night. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, what's going on here? I need to get some work done. So uh, thrilling. Glad to do it. Glad to help the charity there. Um, and I'm going to come back for an encore, which I think I have to just involve Randy one last time. But I'm not going to lie. When I was like, we're going to involve Mike in this. And I was like, yeah, I just need like one paragraph from you, two paragraphs on on your pick. And I don't know. 
Do you know and me? You, and you send me a three-game parlay. I was like, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Brevity has <laughs> never been my uh, strength, for one. Um, yeah, three-game parlay with a three-paragraph uh, <laughs> explanation. I, um, I legitimately thought about throwing UConn in there, like because I was like, there's no way they're going to lose. There's no way Holy Cross is losing by that many points. It's, it's like UConn can't do that. They can't keep – no, no. And I was like, no, that's – got to play new songs. Got to yeah. go to the new album, not play all the hits. But Well, in our in our charity thing, we put in $540 and walked away with $1,102 on the week. It's good. Not a bad return, Michael. So maybe maybe charity bets are making a comeback. Maybe somebody will cut this audio and play it back to me in week five when we're down to two grand. So we'll see. <laughs> Let's cross our fingers there. Well, <laughs> until then, uh, plenty coming on the site, as Chris mentioned, uh, back in business here. Um, as we look forward to the LIU. By the way, do you know Long Island's mascot? Wait, is it a, was it a dolphin? Sharks. Sharks. I knew it was something in the water. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like there's it. something in the water Saturday, five thirty p.m. game. Is that right? Five. Yeah, that's terrible. Terrible. Uh, kind of pregnant, I guess. It's not early. <laughs> it's not late. I don't like those at all. We'll get you ready for kickoff then. Until then, I am Mike Azazen. and I'm Chris Anderson. Talk to you next time. <laughs>